Now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. So she went out, entered a field, and began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Just then, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they answered. Boaz asked the overseer of his harvesters, who does that young woman belong to? The overseer replied, she is the Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She came into the field and has remained here from morning till now, except for a short rest in the shelter. So Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the women. I have told the men not to lay a hand on you. And whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. At this, she bowed down with her face to the ground. She asked him, why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? Boaz replied, I have been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with a people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. May I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord, she said. You have put me at ease by speaking kindly to your servant, though I do not have the standing of one of your servants. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, come over here, have some bread and dip it in the wine vinegar. When she sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain she ate all she wanted and had some left over. As she got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men, let her gather among the sheaves and don't reprimand her. Even pull out some stalks for her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up and don't rebuke her. So Ruth gleaned in the field until evening. Then she threshed the barley she had gathered and it amounted to about an ephah. She carried it back to town, and her mother-in-law saw how much she had gathered. Ruth also brought out and gave her what she had left over after she had eaten enough. Her mother-in-law asked her, Where did you glean today? Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Then Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one at whose place she had been working. The name of the man I worked with today is Boaz, she said. The Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. She added, that man is our closest relative. 
He is one of our guardian redeemers. Then Ruth the Moabite said, he even said to me, stay with my workers until they finish harvesting all my grain. Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it will be good for you, my daughter, to go with the women who work for him because in someone else's field, you might be harmed. So Ruth stayed close to the women of Boaz to glean until the barley and wheat harvests were finished. And she lived with her mother-in-law. The word of the Lord. I don't normally do this uh, without clearing it first, but I'm going to anyway. I'd like to welcome Steve and Cindy Weber with us this morning. Could you guys just stand where you are really quick, please? Yeah. So... That was a surprise for, for you and for me. To, um, but Steve, Steve was our uh, interim pastor here before I came. And, uh, and not only did the two of them together lead this congregation through a difficult, challenging interim time, but also set it up for uh, ministry during a pandemic. And I'm so thankful for your ministry here. And I'm glad that you're here this morning. And, and uh, we celebrate that. So... Welcome and glad to see you guys. Let's turn to God in prayer as we uh, turn to his word this morning. Let's pray. Holy God, we have come here once again to place our lives in front of your open word. No human words will suffice. So we ask that you will send your Holy Spirit, that we might have an encounter with the word made flesh and be transformed a little bit more into his likeness. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Well, we began a journey through the book of Ruth, four chapters, four weeks, and we're in chapter two today. And if you remember from last week, chapter one of the book of Ruth, we saw how Naomi uh, found herself in circumstances that led her into bitterness. There was a famine in the land of Israel, Bethlehem, uh, the house of bread had no bread, and so uh, Naomi, Elimelech, and their two sons, Malon and Kilion, had to leave and flee to the land of Moab. Then uh, Elimelech dies, then the two boys marry Moabite uh, women, which was an act of disobedience at the time for an Israelite to do, and within 10 years, those two uh, boys die. So now Naomi is left with her two daughters in law, Moabite women, Orpah and Ruth. Orpah turns back to stay, uh, to stay with her family, and Naomi and Ruth hear that there is food, that there is a harvest happening in Bethlehem, and the two of them go back to try to start a new life. And you might remember the end of chapter one, where uh, Naomi says, do not call me Naomi, which means pleasant any longer. Call me Mara, which means bitter, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. That's where we left uh, chapter 1 last week. They come back uh, to Bethlehem empty and grieving. And we noticed a few things about how God works in our lives um, from chapter one. One is that tragedy falls on all of us, even the faithful, without exception. The second, we were reminded that God is always at work to redeem our stories, oftentimes, um, oftentimes in the background. 
in ways that we can't see. And then third, we looked at Ruth's example and how she inspires us to live deeper lives of commitment in our relationships. Now, I want us to notice something before we move forward, um, because I think it kind of sets up the text uh, and the subject for this morning. You remember what Naomi said at the end of chapter one? She said, I went away, f- I, I went away full and I came back empty. Here's my question. Did Naomi go away full? Did she really go away full? Is that what she was saying when she left Bethlehem in the middle of a famine? We're so full. We're going to go off to Moab now. I don't think she was saying that. But in hindsight, in retrospect, having gone to Moab and then losing the three people who, were, who mattered the most to her, her husband and her two sons, returning back to Bethlehem, now she can see that she was actually full even though she didn't think so. And so keep that in mind as we continue into chapter 2. The big idea for uh, this chapter is that the Lord cares for his people through his people. The Lord cares for his people through his people. Now that is not the only means at God's disposal. Certainly there are other ways in which God is free to care for his people. But this is a primary one and certainly in the book of Ruth. It's through the characters, it's through their words, it's through their actions uh, that we see that God is caring for Naomi and Ruth. Um, And we saw that last week, especially with Ruth's deep commitment to Naomi, and we'll see it today through this new character named Boaz. So they're back in Bethlehem. They're without uh, Naomi is with Ruth. There are no husbands, no um, other men, just the two of them. Um, It's harvest season. They don't really have any jobs. And so uh, you would imagine that returning back to Bethlehem, that Naomi might be experiencing grief at a new level. The last time she was in Bethlehem, she was with her husband and her two sons. So going back to Bethlehem would only remind her uh, of being with them. All of her favorite places around town, her favorite Starbucks, her favorite uh, ice cream store, you know, her favorite mechanic, all those things. Um, She would have visuals, images of her husband, of her two sons being with her. And so there's a sense in which it's possible that the despair and grief could have sunk even to another level upon returning to Bethlehem. But Ruth decides to go to work. And so she says that she's going to go find some place to go, find somebody who will give her a little bit of work, some scraps, and maybe she can find some food. Kind of like how many day laborers uh, look for work when they come here to our country and they don't have anything and they've got to be industrious and find some work. Well, that's what Ruth is doing. And we can so imagine Naomi not only grieving, but also then worried about Ruth, her daughter-in-law, as she goes out into the into this you know crazy time of of, uh, of land in the time of the judges um, would she come back would she come back in one piece is she going to be harmed out there somewhere um, and so we know from her warning at the end of the passage that working in the fields was often accompanied by abuse 
So she waited for Ruth to return. And when Ruth comes back to Naomi, she does come back in one piece, unharmed. And she brings back what is the equivalent of about 15 days worth of food. 30 to 40, or sorry, 25 to 30 pounds of barley she brings back home, which is not only an enormous amount of food to glean uh, from a field, but it's also a heavy weight to carry. I get a little tired bringing the dog food in from the garage, you know, and she has to walk all of this way with 30 pounds of barley over her shoulder, and she comes back home to Naomi's incredible surprise. So what do we see here in this text? Well, the first thing we see is a dramatic reversal of fortune. Um, do we have a slide here? We sit, it says at the beginning, we, we remember that Naomi went away full. I put that in quotes, right? She went away full. She had her family. She came back empty, no family. Ruth went away empty, and she comes back to Naomi full. Uh, and so we see that God has begun this process of redemption. In this reversal of fortune, the author wants us to see that God's redeeming the situation. Now, we could point to several different aspects of Ruth's character that would be wise for us to emulate. Uh, she was industrious. She was hardworking. She was humble. She was caring. She was committed. Many things in her character. She was faithful. But in the end, this passage is really about God's vindication uh, or the vindication of God's character, I should say, which has been severely called into question by Naomi at the end of chapter one. Naomi was questioning God's goodness to her. How can the Lord be good to me if I have lost my husband and two sons? Um, that can't be the case. But now... Ruth comes back with some miraculous amount of food and barley, and, and now she can start to see that God has proven himself to be merciful and gracious to Naomi. And that evening, not only did Ruth come home with 30 pounds of barley, she also brought a bag of leftovers from the lunch that she had with Boaz. She was invited into lunch with him and his community. And, uh, and as she was eating lunch, she was thinking about her mother-in-law. And so she packs up the leftovers from the lunch and brings it home to her because of her care for her. And in a way, God begins to resurrect a grieving and hopeless and lifeless Naomi. At the end of the first chapter, we saw bitter Naomi. She was someone who was struggling to see the goodness of God in her life. But now, everything's changing. She has experienced God's blessing through Ruth, which came to Ruth through Boaz. And it's kind of like a pay it forward sort of thing. We see God at work using Boaz and giving him generosity to care for Ruth and Ruth caring then for Naomi. But let me make an important point. This doesn't mean that Naomi has forgotten her sorrow. It wasn't as if her demeanor necessarily turned from a frown into a smile, right? Um, she lost her husband and her two sons 30 pounds of barley isn't going to take that away. She would still be feeling sorrow even as she is rejoicing. She can see that God is at work even in the midst 
of her grief. We should not equate uh, worldly happiness with biblical rejoicing. As if the only way to rejoice in God's blessings is if you're jumping up and down and laughing. No, there is a way to rejoice in the blessings of God in the midst of the sorrow and even from the depths of the sorrow. When I talk with people who have grieved the loss of a loved one, like many of you, they will say it never goes away. The grief, the loss, the sense that something is missing, that I had um, like an arm or a limb cut off. And yet I can find gratitude um, in the small blessings that come my way, each of which is now more precious than before. You see, when we're young, we tend to think that joy and sorrow cannot coexist in the same heart. And so we should, if we're Christians, you know, we should try to get rid of the sorrow and go for the joy. And if we can't do that authentically, then we should just pretend so that everybody else can think that we're really spiritual and faithful. But that's not the way it works in the scriptures. As we mature in life and in faith, life happens to us and we experience loss and someone comes alongside and does something really seemingly small and that little blessing becomes an enormous sense of comfort for us. And then we start to realize that joy and sorrow profoundly belong together in the same way that the cross and resurrection belong together. You can't actually have one without the other. G.K. Chesterton said something similar. He said this. He said, hope means hoping when things are hopeless or it's no virtue at all. As long as matters are really hopeful, hope is mere flattery or platitude. It is only when everything is hopeless that hope begins to be a strength. Isn't it amazing how the little things, the small things in life become incredible sources of comfort when you're at the end of your rope? And so receiving a hug when you come home from work can feel routine, but when you're at a funeral grieving the loss of a loved one can be met with uh, so much more power and emotion. Receiving a phone call or a text message when you're home alone um, comes with a, a lot more uh, joy and gratitude than when you're at the movie theaters, right? So context matters. I guess what I'm trying to get at is that we should not uh, shy away from helping people because we don't know how to help them. We don't know what to do for them. We don't know uh, how to come up with some elaborate plan, but we don't have to. We don't have to come up with an elaborate plan to show compassion. Most often it's just simply being with people, showing up, sitting with them, offering a shoulder, listening ear. That's what most people want. In her book, The, the Gospel of Ruth, Carolyn Custis James writes this, if someone gives you a pair of gloves when the sun is shining and your hands are warm, doesn't mean that much. If you're well-fed and have plenty of food in your cupboard, a sack of grain and a ready-to-eat meal seem ordinary and perhaps a little boring. Prosperity tends to dull our senses to the presence of God's chesed. I used this word last week, our loving kindness in our lives. But when trouble strikes and you're sitting in the darkness with a heart that aches for him, the slightest sign of his presence is monumental. 
A load of grain, a cooked meal, or a pair of gloves sends a signal, faint though it may be, that he is here and he hasn't forgotten. Naomi still lost her husband and her two sons, but 30 pounds of grain, or uh, yeah, 30 pounds of grain of barley reminded her that God is still here and God hasn't forgotten. The term chesed, translated loving kindness here in Ruth, is mentioned over 250 times in the Bible, in the Old Testament. The majority of those occurrences refer to God himself, refers to God's character. It speaks of God's covenant faithfulness, his loving kindness. The idea is that even though we as people fall short of our covenant obligations, God never fails in his promise, in his covenant. God is always faithful, always loving, always kind to us. And in this passage, we see this term that is almost always used in reference to God. We see it used in reference to Boaz. And what the author wants us to see is that this is God, the character and life of God at work through this man, Boaz. In addition to his kindness, his great generosity of Boaz in welcoming uh, Ruth and allowing her to glean, bringing her into lunch, telling his workers to take care of her, essentially welcoming her into the community. Uh, in addition to all of that, he was also what's known as a kinsman redeemer. You've heard this before. You heard it in the text this morning. Boaz is a kinsman redeemer. Well, what is that? The Hebrew word is goel, and it was an important designation or calling uh, for a particular person. N it means kind of next of kin or uh, near relative, and it refers to several different things. Fundamentally, the term means to protect, just as uh, Jim shared so well with the children about the wings of refuge and God's protection. Um, in, in the same way, the, the kinsman redeemer um, is called to offer protection. The Lord protects Ruth through Boaz. And we'll see much more, more of this role in the chapters that follow, but it's helpful to have a little bit of an understanding of this, of this person, of the role of the kinsman redeemer. If it's fundamentally about protecting, then that's exactly the image that we have in Boaz. He has told Ruth to stay in his field, um, not go to any other fields because he, she will be safe there. He wants to protect her. Technically speaking, in the book of Leviticus, in Leviticus uh, 25, we can read that the Goel was responsible to keep land within the family. And so he can actually go and buy land back and redeem land back for a near relative who had died. He was also responsible to buy back any family member who had sold themselves into slavery. Sometimes in those days, you had to sell yourself into slavery if you ran out of food and money and your field didn't produce anymore. And the Goel could buy that person back and redeem that person out of slavery. Does that sound familiar? And then there's also the idea of uh, avenging the murder of a kinsman by putting the murderer to death so that if Elimelech had been murdered, Boaz could go and put the murderer to death to avenge that murder. That wasn't the case mentioned in the text. Um, there's also the idea of paying back the debt of a deceased kinsman. 
Anyway, none of these technical situations apply to, to us, to, our, to Ruth and Naomi and Boaz. But the term is also used throughout the Old Testament to refer to God's redeeming activities in general. And this is how Naomi is using the term. She's simply saying there's a near relative who can come to our aid. The point is this. Nothing in the law required Boaz to provide and care for Ruth in the way that he did. He was under no obligation to do that. It, if he was going to, to act on their behalf as a kinsman redeemer, it would only be out of his sheer grace and mercy. And so Boaz stands out for us as someone who's faithful uh, to the way of the Lord, to the heart of God during a time of the judges when everybody else did what was right in their own eyes. Not only did he honor these gleaning laws and God's heart for hospitality, uh, he was also generous to a foreigner, a foreign outsider. Ruth came to the field of Boaz as an outsider. She came as a foreigner. In addition, she came with nothing to offer. She didn't have anything to offer. She came empty. And in return, she received great compassion. And this raises another theme in the book of Ruth in which the story also contains what is called a polemic. Polemic is that it's not just a gentle story about God's providence and faithfulness, though that's the central theme. It's also a quietly edgy story about xenophobia and immigration, and the example of welcome and embrace given even to those who come from a different country, a different land, and even a different God. Now to be sure, reading the story, we as readers, we, will, we might remember that Ruth, this Moabite, that she actually committed her life in front of Naomi to the God of Israel. So technically she's a convert to Israel. But many of those in Bethlehem when she got there would have no idea of this conversion. And if they did, they certainly wouldn't know of its sincerity or whether it's skin deep. What they know is that her skin is different than theirs. She's a Moabite from Moab. We see this polemic in the life and teaching also of Moses, David, and Jesus, who, by the way, were not only immigrants at some point in their lives, but were refugees who had to flee for their lives for safety. Moses, for 40 years, fleeing from Pharaoh, king of Egypt. David fleeing from King Saul. Jesus as a baby with his parents fleeing from King Herod. And so for Moses and, and David, the motivation for their teaching was very clear. This is what God is like. God pays attention to and takes care of the foreigner, the widow, the orphan, the outsider. And therefore, so must we. Let me just read a couple of key verses from the book of Deuteronomy. This is Moses. This is not even the Psalms or the prophets. This is the Deuteronomy law. The Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords who executes justice for the orphan and the widow and who loves the strangers providing for them food and clothing. 
chapter 24, when you reap your harvest, Boaz, when you reap your harvest in your field and you forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back and get it. We're not about maximizing profits here in in God's economy. You shall not go back and get it to maximize your profits. It shall be left for the alien, the orphan, the widow, so that the Lord your God may bless you in all your undertakings. And then cursed be anyone who deprives the alien, the orphan, the widow of, ju- of justice. This is harsh language. And these are repeated themes in the Bible. In fact, God's particular interest and passion for strangers and aliens and foreigners is mentioned over a hundred times in the Bible. And Jesus picks up on this, and I'm not going to get into all of the ways in which Jesus picks up on this, but you can read the good parable of the Good Samaritan, or really the entire Gospel of Luke, or um, the parable of the sheep and the goats in Matthew chapter 25. And so just like Boaz, welcoming and urging his community to welcome Ruth, who explicitly points out that she is a foreigner, and who is stunned that Boaz would reach out and care for her, Jesus tells us to welcome the stranger. These are her words to Boaz in verse 10. Why have I found favor in your sight that you should take notice of me, she says to Boaz, when I am a foreigner, a stranger? Why would you do this? In fact, the more closely you read the book of Ruth, especially chapters 1 and 2, the more you see that God through the author, is trying to drive home this message about welcoming the strangers and foreigners by repeatedly emphasizing the fact that Ruth is a Moabite, that she's a foreigner. She's Ruth the Moabite seven times and adding redundantly three times that she's from the country of Moab, right? So she's Ruth the Moabite from the country of Moab as, a, as if to say, she's definitely not one of us. She is other. She is other. Even though we know from Ruth 1.15 that she has taken a vow to worship the God of Israel, she's still suspect because her people worship an alien God, they sacrifice their children, and they've been our enemies forever. However, what the story tells us is this. Not only does Boaz welcome this foreigner, knowing full well who she is, but that it's actually God welcoming her through Boaz, provides for her, protects her, and honors both the integrity and faithfulness of Ruth as well as the integrity and open embrace of Boaz. Here's a question, though. Why was Boaz so generous? Why would he act in a way that is so different than everybody else in the time of the judges, this wealthy man being as generous as he was. I think it's because Boaz knew a generous God. How would he know a generous God? Well, at the end of the book of Ruth, we learn that Boaz's father was a man by the name of Salmon, but we learn from the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter one and verse five, who his mother was. Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. Rahab was Boaz's mom. Rahab was a foreigner. Boaz learned from her God's heart for caring for the foreigners. You know the story so well. Rahab lived in the city of Jericho, 
which was surrounded by a great wall. It was the city that was the first city that Joshua would conquer. And it was miraculously captured such that nobody could get the glory except for God. And what happens is, is that just prior to the fall of Jericho, a couple of spies, Israelite spies, are sent into the city. And when they are discovered and found out, every, the whole operation is at risk. There is this one woman, a foreigner, an outsider, by the name of Rahab, who's also a prostitute, by the way, who took them into her home and protected them. And she covered for them because of her faith in God. And we read about this in Hebrews 11. She made it into the, the, the Bible Hall of Fame in Hebrews 11. And the mercy that she showed these spies, she was protected during the attack. And so Boaz was treating Ruth the same way God was treating his mother. Just as uh, Ruth was honored for her, or just as I should say Rahab, an outsider, honored for her faith and her courage in the God of Israel, and God honored that. Rahab, her faith and her courage was now going to be honored, I mean Ruth, by Rahab's son, Boaz. Wow. I think it goes deeper than that. I think it's actually God who's the one who's showing kindness to Ruth, and he was doing so through the hands of Boaz bringing her into this covenant community just like he did Rahab. But Ruth's redemption was not yet complete. The story isn't over yet. The last phrase of the passage says, she lived with her mother-in-law. Uh, at the end of each of these chapters, it's a pointer to the next one. At the end of chapter one, in the midst of all of that tragedy, it said, it was the beginning of the barley harvest, pointing to chapter 2. Now we're in chapter 2. It says she lived with her mother-in-law. Her redemption is not yet complete. It points to the remaining need that she had in those days. Um, to, it was to be married and to have children. That was protection. That was life. So the story isn't over yet. What we'll see next week is that Boaz, as amazing and wonderful and generous as he is, is actually just a foretaste to another redeemer, a true and greater redeemer, whose hospitality and generosity and hesed we celebrate every time we come to this table. Just as Boaz was under no obligation to welcome Ruth, a foreigner, so was Jesus under no obligation to descend the comforts of heaven and to welcome us strangers to the love of God and foreigners to God's covenant. And this is why we can be hospitable and we don't have to be afraid of strangers and outsiders, but we can welcome them because God has welcomed us in Jesus Christ. And just as Boaz received Ruth and shared the riches of his harvest with her undeservedly, she had nothing to offer so does God in Jesus Christ offer his greatest riches to us, the harvest of righteousness that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. And this is why we can trust that God is at work redeeming our stories too. So we don't stand in amazement simply at the example of Boaz, though we do. We are moved to worship God because of who Boaz foreshadowed. We glorify God because of the gospel of his son, Jesus Christ. And that, no matter our circumstances, is always cause for rejoicing.
Gracious God, we thank you for the ways in which you work. Sometimes they are mysterious. So help us to see how you send people in our path to care for us, how you are redeeming the tragic experiences in our lives and our stories through the promise of Jesus Christ and our ultimate redemption in him. Help us to be unafraid since you have welcomed us into your covenant. May we not be afraid of anybody who's different or other, but may we be welcoming as you are. In Christ's name we pray, amen.